if it's appropriate to actually share a prayer. Um, my prof shared it with us, uh, my cohort, my doctoral cohort uh, this week. When do weeks end? Anyway, um, shared it with us this week. I shared it with our pastoral team. I shared it with uh, our leadership team, and I shared it with our city group. And so I feel like I should just share it with us too as well. It's from Evelyn Underhill, lived 1875 to 1941, dynamic minister, wrote this. Lord, going out from this silence, teach me to be more alert, humble, expectant than I have been in the past, ever ready to encounter you in quiet, homely ways. In every appeal to my compassion, Every act of unselfish love which shows up and humbles my imperfect love, may I recognize you. Still walking through the world, give me the grace of simplicity which alone can receive your mystery. I like that a lot. I feel like it connects what we talked about last week as we looked at some of the practices and you just see baby Jesus, you know, no longer in a manger, growing young adolescent in his father's house, solitude, time with God. And that was one of the practices was to say, man, this week, just grab some of that, carve it out, if not create rhythms for it. And so just this prayer was very enriching to my soul. It's just a reminder of the power of solitude and simplicity and in meeting God who is still walking with us in our everyday world. And it's not just a reminder of last week's message. It actually is tied to this week's message as well. I envision our time together today as reinforcing ideas that we've been talking about in the life of our church. Singing Hyde was really weird and surreal for me. Um, yeah, uh, but we've been talking about these ideas forever. Uh, but also these ideas have been coming to the surface in the Gospel of Luke. And so I wanna reinforce them and then connect something that I feel like, again, is just often disconnected. So I. I envision this sermon, this message today as reinforcing and connecting through clarifying, but also as an invitation. Like that during this time that we are sharing together in person, online, like that during this time, it would be an invitation to do business with God. Like as we're working through the text, like as God is like speaking to you through the text itself, like through that, that whisper in your soul, that you would respond and do business with him, but particularly at the end, that we would do business with God. This sermon, this message is invitational because the text itself is invitational. Let me, let me explain it like this and then we'll, we'll cruise through this thing. I think that track and field is by far the greatest sport of all time. Now, here's why. Um, yes, amen. So, um, you know, obviously, I'm saying that as one who is biased. However, our sport is your sport's punishment. So take that, right? You're late to practice and you play football, what do you do? Run. You're late to basketball practice, what do you do? Suicides. Our sport is your sport's punishment, which reveals it's superior. Nevertheless, all facts, no cap. Nevertheless, one of my favorite things is the relay race. Four by one, four by two, four by four. 
I just heard a voice. I can't see it, but I feel it. It's glorious. They say it's the grown man race because it separates the men from the boys. Amen, amen. Or women. Yes, yes. No misogyny here in Jesus' name. However, um, what happens in the relay race, if you know, somebody has a baton, they're running, they usually have a signal. In high school for us, we barked, roof, roof, it was a thing. And so they would bark, pass the baton, somebody would have, that's good form, your hands like that, you grab it, boom, 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 and you would just keep going and you're passing a baton, yes? And the person who gets the baton is taking forward like this race. They're running with speed and with excellence and they're carrying something to the finish line. Does that make sense? We are at this portion of the text and it's a pivot. We, adult Jesus now. But before we get fully into adult Jesus and his words and his ways, we're looking at John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a forerunner. He comes before Christ with a baton in his hand and he has this powerful dynamic message and this powerful accompanying act. And then he passes the baton to Jesus and Jesus takes it and goes further, faster. It's excellent. But often the way we talk about John the Baptist in relation to Jesus is as if John the Baptist was just there for a moment and then we just kind of forget about him because, you know, he must decrease and Christ must increase. And it's almost like Jesus comes on the scene as like, good job, John the Baptist, but I'll take it from here. That is not the picture the scriptures paint of the relationship between John the Baptist or Jesus. Jesus' words and ministry was built on the foundation that John the Baptist laid. It is stunning how it's almost like he is saying the same thing verbatim and doing similar things, but tying them in a different way. It's foundational and he's building on it. It's more like a relay race. And the reason that matters, and going back to why it's invitation is because just like John the Baptist, he passed this glorious baton to Jesus. Jesus passes a baton to his people. And the, the core of that glorious baton is found in the text that we're reading and looking at today. That's why it's invitational. We got to understand the work and message of John the Baptist so we could fully understand the work and message of Jesus Christ so that we could fully understand the work and message of anybody who claims the noble identity of Christian. So that long intro out the way, we're going to work through the text. And what I want to do is I want to just work through the work of John the Baptizer then work through this work applied across society. It's enriching. And then close with the grid. We talked about the grid being perspective, practices, and a picture from the other side. Still waiting on more people with ideas of a better name. Read with me and then we'll take it bit by bit. The work of John the Baptizer, the work applied across society, and then closing with the grid. It reads like this, John 3, 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Underline that, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah 
in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, seed of serpents, Satan is your father, Mori, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. It's the stuff of beauty, man. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and Philip tetrarch of the region that we have a hard time pronouncing We have this other person we have a hard time pronouncing, Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, but we know Annas and Caiaphas, high priesthood. Don't gloss over that. Everything that Christians claim is grounded in history, not fantasy. These are names that situate the story in real time. So many implications abound. It is easy to treat Christianity and the scriptures like a glorified version of Aesop's fables. If you're millennial or above, you know Aesop's fables. Why did the tortoise beat the hare? Because the tortoise was patient and not prideful. So there's like this moral lesson that we're supposed to learn from this outrageous reality track again. Tortoises have beaten no hair, anything. That's not happening. And so sometimes we, we look at the Bible that way and we look at Christianity like, oh yeah, it's good for morality to teach us these lessons about life so we can be better people. That is not the scriptures. That is not Christianity. It doesn't make bad people better. It brings dead people to life. Claims rooted in history. This is not fantasy. If you are a Christian, just know the things that you claim to be true have historical backing to them. It's confidence. 
You can find my birth certificate, Harris County. I lived. You could find where Jesus lived and walked, Jerusalem, Nazareth, Galilee. But you can't find his bones, resurrection. The entire scene that we just read is a prelude that tells the story of God's work in the world, his word at work through people. That's why I said underline that the word of God came. It is tying John to this noble tradition of herald, of prophet, of thus says the Lord. So the words that come from John's mouth are instructive and authoritative. Let's look at his work. It's simple and it's rich. It's a message. Isaiah 40 is everywhere. But the simplicity of the message is good news. It's good news. It's a message of life, repentance, renewal. That's the message. That's what Isaiah 40 communicates. Isaiah 40 is this picture of God announcing comfort to his people. And Luke includes this passage in here. Matthew includes this passage in here. Mark includes this passage in here as this powerful reminder that God has not forgotten his people. It's a message of life. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And then you just have this outworking of the beauty and greatness of God to draw people into this sense of God wants life for you. It's a message of life. It's, it's gospel. It's good news. But this message of life has an act that is dynamic and accompanying it. It's the act of baptism. Let me explain how dynamic this act is. There's elements of reflection to this act of baptism. When I say reflection, it means that it embodies and reflects the aim of the message. The aim is life, but life that God envisions for people is one where we are joined to him, where we're, where we're connected to him so deeply, so meaningfully, that it's hard to determine where he begins and we end relationally, it's like a ring. That's why marriage is an illustration of God's love for us in the gospel. Where does it begin? Where does it end? It's so intertwined. So this act of baptism is reflection, embodying and reflecting the aim, but it's also demonstration. It communicates the means by which the aim is accomplished. So John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. That's going to come later. But he's, he's baptizing people there, and it's dunking. This is not a statement of form per se. You weren't really baptized. You were sprinkled. Like this, is like, this, is not, this is not what this is getting at at all. But it's a demonstration in the sense of the means, like the same way the water is covering you and you're being submerged in it. God's love and grace and kindness. God himself covers us. Like the Jordan River water is covering those who are baptized. God himself is enveloping you with his love and his grace and his kindness. He is all-consuming fire. It's not just reflection or demonstration. It's affirmation, right? There's a public confession and commitment 
I have this desire, I want the entire world to see. Showing off. It's affirming something has happened in me, so much so that I'm not ashamed. This is Romans 1.16. Paul talks about this. He says, listen, I'm in chains. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. People hate me. I've been socially ostracized. I'm seen as a weirdo. I'm seen as that guy and not in a good way. But you know what? I am unashamed of the gospel. For in it, it is the power of salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Through this good news, God is doing something powerful and I'm not ashamed of it. I want the entire world to know I'm a Christian. Not like those undercover Christians. Well, what do you believe? Well, you know, I kind of do that. Affirmation. The last element here is connection. And it's, and it's not merely, well, you can put connection with reflection, right? Because you're being connected to God. But there's something unique happening here. He is, he is, he is connecting them back to prior commitments. He is connecting them to a covenant that was established between God and his people. Connection here signifies covenant renewal. This is why the Jordan makes sense, Jordan River. So the Jordan River, as the primary place where this baptism was occurring, is super meaningful. Because in the history of the people of God, of Israel, the Jordan River communicated a few things. It was a place of transition and remembrance. So this is Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 3, verse 17, they are crossing over the Jordan River on dry land, some million plus people, and they're crossing over this river, transitioning from the wilderness into the land flowing with milk and honey, i.e. they're transitioning into the promise that God has made for them. They're transitioning into this new experience of covenant relationship with God, it's transition. But Joshua chapter four shows that it's not trans, just transition, it's also remembrance. So God calls them to take these stones with them as they're going and create this altar. And all throughout the Old Testament, what you see are these creations of altars, which are places of remembrance where you are marking what God has done for you. Jacob built a well there, altar, Ladder of heaven. Consistent. And so the Jordan River was a significant place of transition and remembrance, crossing over into the promises of God, remembering the faithfulness of God. But it wasn't just a place of transition and remembrance. It was a place of provision and healing. This is 1 Kings 17. Elijah was fed by the ravens right by the Jordan. This is 2 Kings 2. Naaman was healed of leprosy, dipping seven times in the Jordan. In other words, the Jordan River is a place symbolic of God's presence and promises. And by baptizing, submerging them into this place, he is connecting them to the very presence and promise of God to mark them forever and to invite them 
to recommit their love for God. It's dynamic. In short, the work of John the baptizer was preparation for the Messiah. Consistently communicated that. I'm not the Messiah, somebody who was way better than me. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. Like he's coming. I'm just a voice making straight the way, calling people to att- its preparation. But it's also participation in covenant renewal. That people's lives are actually changed by entering into this baptism with John the Baptist. It's meaningful. It's connected to Jesus. And what Jesus does is he takes that and he goes further. He goes further. Oh, you're being baptized into this new family. You're not just connected individually to God, but because this is covenant renewal, you're being connected to the entire community of God, the people. And Jesus says, I'm doing the exact same thing, but I'm baptizing you into a new covenant. It's a covenant of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember it. I love, I love this passage. It's not get out the way, I'll take it for here. It's like, great job, John. Let's keep this thing going. This is evidenced in verse seven. If, if, this, if this is the work, this is the message Life and participation in relationship with God everlasting. That he actually gives us a means as well that that baptism is communicating something. Verse seven through eight. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This phrase that comes over and over and over again from John's lips, from Jesus's lips is repent and Repent and believe. Message of good news, but it's experienced through repentance and faith. The simplicity of repentance is to turn, to change one's mind, to be heading in one direction, and to with intentionality, courage, and resolve, go another one. It's repentance. It's faith. It's to believe that this repentance is meaningful. It's to believe that the one that's calling you to repent is true. It's to believe that the one that's calling for this repentance is good. It's to believe that the repentance that actually takes place in your heart is doing something. Repent and believe. We want to participate in this new life, this new covenant. Repent and believe. But I like what he does next. What he does next, I mean, it is, it is so subversive. Because you know what we like? We like ambiguous repentance. We like, and I'm talking to Christians specifically right now. So if you're not a Christian, lock in. But I'm actually talking to the people of God right now. We like to say, man, you know, I'm just struggling with, and we don't actually say what we're struggling with. He was like, you know what, like, man, like, me and my wife, are, we, you know, we kind of had a spat. What is a spat? You punched her in the face, my guy. That is not a spat. That is called abuse. What are we talking about? Man, you know what, like, I was just looking, 
I clicked, fam, what are we really doing? You sought it out. This, come on. And that's what we do. This is, I'm not, I'm not, you know, life is hard. We all struggle. Sin is real. It is a monster. It is a beast. It wants to steal our soul, destroy our lives because Satan wields it. Listen, however, I am becoming increasingly convinced that we don't have freedom in life because we're not repenting with specificity. And I'm not talking about like you got to, you know, recount all the bad that you've done so that you can be free. But I am talking about what we do, which is just like, you know, halfway confess, which is halfway half-hearted repentance. He is removing the ambiguity. He is calling them towards specific, specific actions, yeah. And particularly to those of us who find ourselves in a theological tradition that says, yo, repentance, just believe more deeply in the gospel. I don't even know what that means anymore. I just know it's not the way the Bible talks. It is not the way John is talking right now, and it is not the way Jesus is talking either. Oh, man, we believe our justification before God, that we were made right by the blood of Jesus Christ. But that that justification to be made righteous is expressed in righteous living and repentance is to, it is to say, God, I need your righteousness. I need your perfect life in exchange for mine's. I need not to be cleaned up, but to be made new. And I need to repent when I fail to walk in that newness of life. There's specificity that John is doing here. He is applying this work of repent and believe specifically. I like it. There's a lot of the stuff he's doing here. Not the least of which is not just applying it with specificity, but he's applying it not just to individuals, he's applying it to groupings of people. Catch this. So they came up to him, crowds, right? They came up to him, tax collectors. They came up to him, soldiers. We have to have the eyes to see that there are entire groupings of people that reflect something. Matthew is going to bring this out. So this initial crowd dynamic that comes to him, that he immediately responds, oh, yeah, seed of Satan. It's actually the religious. Notice to be true. Notice what he says to them. Because he's going to give specific responses to each different people grouping. Notice what he says to them. He says, listen, don't think that you're safe because you could claim your heritage, your ancestry, God is powerful enough that if he so chose, he'd take these stones right here, sons, daughters of Abraham. He's saying to this religious group, you're not safe because of your tradition. You're safe if you believe in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, 7 says that these people were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious. We have a tradition that ties us to the throne of God, children of Abraham. It won't save you, but it may enslave you to a false sense of security. He's not just talking to the religious. He's actually talking to the everyday people as well. 
Notice, and the crowds. So he's, he's moving on just from the crowds that really constituted this religious portion, and he's moving on to the crowds generally. We note, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Two tunics. Let me be very clear. This is not encouragement for a governmental style, system, or strategy. This is not encouragement for a governmental system, style, or strategy. Generationally, what we do is in efforts to correct issues and problems that we may have experienced, we swing the pendulum. In our country, we're trying to do the same, and it's like, no, 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 no. The answer to toxic capitalism is not socialism. Like this is, and, and I'm, the reason I don't even say that is because I'm watching Christians use the scriptures in ways that are unhelpful, man. Like, don't go here and say, you see, not, this is not a scripture that gives us ammunition for that, man. The scriptures filter all government strategies, systems through the lens of eternity, and they say none of them do that the ultimate end game is theocratic rule. Jesus on the throne in new Jerusalem in a new earth ruling over all. This is why Psalm two is so powerful. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? They plot in vain. It's all said and done. Christ is coming back and he's transforming all and the way he is ruling is this king we long for it. No king has the capacity to rule like he does. No president has the capacity to rule like he does. No leader has the capacity to rule like he does regardless of what strategy they employ. So he's not giving fuel for systems per se. What he is doing is he's identifying something that has been happening in the life of the people of God. So we, we read this and immediately our minds should go to Isaiah because he quoted Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is on the heels of Isaiah 1 through 39. And the beginning of Isaiah is madness. God comes in with some heavy-handed rebukes. And his heavy-handed rebukes are like, my people my people who are supposed to be known for their beauty and their truthfulness and their grace and their justice, they are known for their oppression. They are known for their greed. They are known for the way that they don't plead the cause of the widow or the orphan. And he's heavy handed with it. And what he's saying is, look, the society that you're in right now, everyday person, has gotten so deformed that greed is ruling you. We know greed is ruling them because notice every single one of the rebukes and calls to repentance. It's pressing at greed. And so the solution he offers them is, hey, love your neighbor like yourself. <laughs> Super simple. He says, you want, you want to be 
partakers of this new covenant. You got two tunics and they don't have any. Why are you holding on to it? He poses a question. Yo, give it away. Love them. Don't watch them suffer when you have the power to do something. Then he goes to the tax collectors. What shall we do? He says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax farming was real. So tax farming is where governors or other high-level officials outsource the right to collect taxes within their jurisdiction. And in order to get that contract, if you will, you had to say, I'm going to give this official X amount of money on top of whatever the taxes was. But then how are you going to make profit? Well, let's say the tax is 7%. I'm going to give this official an additional 2%. Well, if I got to make some money, I'm going to increase it 1% as well. So the people should only be paying 7% worth of taxes, but I'm charging them 10% because two got to go to the man. He has his hand in my pockets and one has to go to me. I got a family to feed. And he comes in and he's like, guys, that's wrong. (laughs) He's like, not only are you betraying your own people, but you are getting wealth at their expense. That's problematic. And so he says, just don't collect more than you have to. You know how powerful that is? <laughs> then he goes to the soldiers. He goes to the soldiers. Yo, what must we do? Because they're coming to him, which is amazing, by the way. And he's like, hey, don't be violent. Don't use your role or your power to get over on people. Greed again. This is, this is meaningful stuff, guys. And you know the part that's been rocking me, and I'm going to say this and move on, is the solution he offers, man. Collective identities, micro-communities, if you will, they share values, they share experiences, they become a culture in and of themselves, some groupings of people. Tax collectors, religious, everyday people, they're just existing in the flow of society Soldiers, all sorts of sectors in a given community. It's gotten so bad, so toxic, that what is marking these natural sectors is injustice and pain and struggle and the most vulnerable in the community are suffering. Tax collector, actual job. Soldier, actual job. Religious leader, actual job, even if some may see it informally. And what he doesn't tell these people in their repentance is, you know what? Pharisee, Sadducee, stop being a Pharisee or Sadducee. Go find a different job to do. Tax collector, you know what? Stop being a tax collector. Go find a different job to do. Soldier, stop being a soldier. Go find. He doesn't do that. These systems, these, these, these parts of society, these these governmental jobs, these educational jobs, these institutional jobs that have been so marked with corruption. He does not say withdraw, leave. He says repent and sends them back in to be agents of renewal. It's powerful, it's powerful. Soldier, don't leave your post, be a better soldier. 
tax collector. Don't leave your post. Be a better tax collector. Could you imagine if Christians had this mindset? That their aim in life was that, you know what, I'm going to go start another Christian nonprofit. Why? 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 And I'm not shading anybody else. God has put something in your heart. Get after it in Jesus' name if you have community. But man, how about joining an existing nonprofit and then serving and leading with better ethics? Man, we're going to go get, create a new Christian. Come on, fam. Just be better. Say that the, the environment around me is not going to dictate my identity to me. What is going to dictate my identity is repentance and faith, which is rooted in the gospel. And that is going to dictate my ethics. So, yeah, I probably could charge an additional 3% and make some money and build generational wealth. But you know what I'm going to do? Not that. It's powerful stuff, man. <laughs> it's very powerful for me. He's getting at the fruit of repentance which is always true, beautiful, noble, good, and just. But he's also showing that biblical repentance is not merely behavior modification. It is identity formation. It's captured here because he's saying, don't leave, just grow into a better expression of who you're called to be. This is Ephesians 4, 25. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, do honest work with his hands. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up and fits the occasion, that he may give grace to those who hear. See that? Each of these are repentance. It's transformation, but it's transforming one into something excellent. You were a thief? Do something better with your hands. You weaponize your words? Use your words to heal. It's powerful. Biblical repentance is not merely behavior modification, it's identity formation, which means it's heart transformation. This is Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. Let me apply this. If God was calling you to repentance right now, what would it look like? With specificity. Because guess what? God is calling you to repentance right now. He's calling me to do the same. This is Jesus' words, repent and believe. Mark 1.14, Matthew 4.17, Luke 5.32, and even John, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus 3, 5 through 7, born again, that's repent and believe to experience newness of life. He is making the same appeal now. This is Acts 17. It's appointed for one man to die and then judgment for God overlooks certain things, but he's calling all of us to repent and believe. This is Acts 2. This is the entire Bible. It's this powerful call of repentance and faith to turn and be transformed and renewed, not by your own strength, as if I could resist that extra 3% because my pastor is talking with a loud voice. That doesn't work. What? Spirit of God, man, in us, making us alive. Wrestling with our conscience so we feel and see things differently. Calling us to action. Greed is a monster. Miami makes it harder. Oof. Damn. 
Driving here, well, actually, I rode in the Uber. It was chaos. We'll buy your house cash fast. That ain't, that ain't Miami money. I'll tell you where that money coming from. It's real, man. It's a monster out here. But there's something more excellent to say, I will resist the wave of my community and all of its expressions, whatever that wave causes me to walk in a way that is not true to who God is and what God says, I will resist defiance as an act of obedience. God was calling to repentance right now, which he is. What would it look like? What areas would I need to repent from and why? What actions would he be calling me into and why? Last bit, and then the grid. These are collective identities. It doesn't subvert the individual, but it does heighten and emphasize the reality of participating in a particular group of people. It's what John aims for us to see. It's what the scriptures aim for us to see. It's powerful. And the thing that's been rocking me is how if you're part of a group of people, a collective identity, it's hard to be honest with your sins. Like, it's very hard to be honest with the sins that you need to repent from or the community needs to repent from. Who likes anime in here? Who's better? God bless you. Let me say something about you guys. Anime is hyper-erotic. Period. And so just know there's a way that it's doing something to your soul. And you may not see it, but other people do and we could go down the list. We need the beauty of others to kind of help us see what is going on in our own hearts and some of the communities that we participate in. If you're in real estate, you need somebody outside of real estate who could give you an eye of maybe what's going on. If you're a business manager, if you're creative, we have a ton of creatives. People outside to say, hey man, the way that you're putting those lyrics together, it's creative, but it's actually ungodly as well. We all need each other to be able to draw out where repentance is most necessary. The grid, perspective. How can we have God's eyes? Well, having God's eyes in this area means that the very call to repentance is a powerful act of love and grace. If I see somebody hurting, enslaved, and broken, and I say nothing, that shows I do not care about them at all. I don't know how else to say that. I've thought of a cute way, a clever way to say it, and I couldn't come up with one. So I just need to be as straightforward as possible. Our silence shows the absence of our love. Practice. What John is doing here is something that we're called to do because a baton is being passed to us. It is personal and social analysis through spiritual eyes. He's looking at the window and he's looking at the mirror. The mirror is like, okay, this is me. I'm staring at myself, but he's looking at the window through it. I'm looking at the world and what is shaping my eyes is the spirit of the living God. So I would encourage if you have it in you to read Isaiah 40 this week because it just shapes the beauty of what God wants to accomplish. And if you have the space, read the entire book of Isaiah because it is a powerful companion to Luke's gospel. Picture from the other side, who are we if we believe 
repentance, the call to repentance is an act of love and grace. Who are we if we are examining, analyzing ourselves and the world around us through spiritual eyes? Who are we if this takes hold? We are people who delight in repentance. That means we're quicker to do it because we're delighted in it. Don't underestimate the connection between delight and our energy and pace. No one has to tell me to do the things I like to do. We delight in it. That means when it takes place, we celebrate. When other people are repenting, we don't do what happens in Luke 15 that's coming. Man, I can't believe that you're accepting that person. No, we delight in the repentance. When we see the need for it, we don't stay silent, but we challenge as an expression of love and grace because we're delighted in it. That's the invitation. Where are you today? Christian, where are you today? Non-Christian, God is staring at you and there's love in his eyes. There's truth in his eyes. There's grace in his eyes. And he says, I just want you. I want you. I want you to participate in this life. And you don't have to do a thing. You don't have to earn it. Just turn and believe. Pray with me. Father.